Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through to 16. By faith. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abraham offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so that he, he did not experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed 
to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now we go to the complete chapter of Daniel 3, the image and the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 foot high and 9 foot wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship image the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image... I made very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God 
will be able to rescue you from my hand. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and lawyer, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Last week we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream where he sees a proud, dazzling statue smashed to pieces. And amazingly, God revealed to Daniel both the dream itself and its interpretation that God is going to set up his own kingdom. 
What do you reckon would be a logical way to respond to that dream and that amazing miracle that happened? I would think that it would make sense to jump ship, wouldn't you? To get on board with what God's doing with His own kingdom. But it seems like Nebuchadnezzar has a different approach. Look at the start of the chapter again in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Surely it can't be a coincidence that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a dazzling giant statue, and then sometime later, what do you know? He builds one. Except you notice that Nebuchadnezzar makes one small change to the statue, because the statue he makes doesn't just have a head of gold, the whole thing's covered in gold. What's Nebuchadnezzar trying to do here? He's making a statement. This 30-metre image is is a statement about his magnificence. He is the King of Kings. He has dominion, power and might and glory. We're not told exactly what the image represents, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar himself or his kingdom or one of his gods, but we do get a pretty clear picture of what he's hoping to achieve with it. Have a look at verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image. What's with all the repetition in this chapter? Did you notice that? Writing materials back then were extremely expensive Why waste space on long lists, repeated lists of officials and musical instruments? These lists, they aren't just irritating, irrelevant parts of this story. They're a key part of what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create unity in the diversity of his kingdom. He's trying to encourage a shared vision. So he, he gathers all the different kinds of officials from all the different nations that he's conquered, with different languages, with all their different instruments, and he wants them to conform to his vision, to unite behind his authority. Now, it's not complete insanity. It makes sense that Nebuchadnezzar needs to hold his empire together. If he doesn't, it's just going to break apart. In the book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, Andrew Delbenko argues that that a culture must provide a narrative for its people. And being such an inspirational kind of guy, look at the the, um, narrative that Nebuchadnezzar provides in verse 5. His herald says, As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. It's kind of like an Olympic opening ceremony with a kind of dark twist. Gathering all the different peoples together to unify them. So if they're not unified around sport, Nebuchadnezzar's ceremony is demanding allegiance to him and his kingdom as the ultimate authority. That's the unity he's aiming for. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not alone in this kind of behaviour. In fact, it's very easy for human authority of all different kinds to take God's place. All sorts of human rule, from individuals 
to governments, to institutions, to family structures, can cross that line and start acting in the place of God. Nebuchadnezzar says, worship my gods and, and my, image, my image or die. This is sort of as crude as it gets in one way. But there have actually been stacks of examples like this in history. And some of the examples are even worse than Nebuchadnezzar. They've, they've gone a step further and, and demanded to be considered either divine themselves or a representation of the divine. Like a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a couple of centuries later, who saw himself as the revelation of God. Or many of the Roman emperors. And even today we still see it. With King Jong-il and his son, Un. You can see the people bowing down in that picture. It's very easy, actually, for human authority to cross the line and to demand an allegiance that only rightly belongs to God. But human authorities, they don't just take God's place in crude ways with massive statues. There are many, many ways that they can overstep the boundaries. They cross the line whenever they claim to be able to do what only God can do. Answer our every need, satisfy our every desire, cause us to achieve our our purposes and dreams, give us an unshakable security and determine for us what's right and what's wrong. And they cross the line when they think they have the right to demand or even just to imply an allegiance to them that comes before an allegiance to God. You should consider yourself an Australian citizen before you consider yourself a Christian. If that's said or even implied, then it's happening like it frequently does. Someone somewhere is crossing the line. When people try to force us to unite behind even really good things by claiming that they can give us what only God can give us and demanding that we give them what only rightly belongs to God they've crossed this line and there are, there are lots of potentially unifying things that should never be ultimate things. Nationalism, even democracy, socialism, capitalism, environmentalism, naturalism, progressive secularism or conservatism or even and sometimes especially religion. Many of these things are actually good things, but if they're made into ultimate things, they're terrible things. And yet it's pretty common for people to try and make us give them a higher allegiance than what belongs to God. So how do most people respond to Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to unify his kingdom? We see two ways that most of the people respond. One is that they conform, and the second is they become enforcers. Have a look at verse 7. All the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's a pretty powerful unifying moment. And in one sense, it's a beautiful thing. With unity, with simplicity, with single focus, humanity can achieve amazing things, can be lifted to amazing heights. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar's unity is a corruption of the unity that only God can bring. Does this kind of make you think of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, of, um, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, make you think of Babel all over again? 
Now, initially, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is achieving what he set out to achieve. Everybody's conforming exactly like he wants them to. But this is where the enforcers step in. Often when human authorities cross the line, you get people like this who enforce the vision even more fanatically than the people behind the vision themselves. Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Literally, they ate pieces of them. Who knows why they're doing this exactly? You know, is it jealousy that's going on? Is it ambition? Is it because they really believe in Nebuchadnezzar's dream for a unified kingdom? Well, it seems that it's at least racially and religiously motivated. Look at what they say in verse 12. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, Your Majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of God you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar has three people who are not conforming. And what he does next is going to make or break the utopia that he's trying to create. And this brings us to our second point. When human authorities take God's place, believers face, time, face times where it would be very easy to deny God. When people take God's authority, there are guaranteed to be times when believers face a black and white decision to choose God or to choose to compromise. Think about how Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are handling this situation so far. Did you notice that they're not happy to rebel on the inside but conform on the outside? You know, they don't conveniently tie their shoelace at the the right moment when the music starts up. Neither do they go and, and hide behind a shed at that point. Maybe that wasn't even an option for them. But neither do they march up to Nebuchadnezzar and make it crystal clear that they're not going to bow down. They don't bow down, they don't run away, they don't flaunt their rebellion or hide it, they just stand there. They just get on humbly being loyal to God and as loyal to Nebuchadnezzar as their first loyalty allows them to be. But just by standing there like that, they're incredibly dangerous to Nebuchadnezzar. They're dangerous to his attempts to unify. Their stand declares to the world that Nebuchadnezzar's authority is not the ultimate authority. Just by standing there, they threaten to undo everything he's working towards. And actually, every time a believer stands like that, it declares the same thing. It says to human authorities, you are not ultimate. You face God's judgment too. And depending on just how far they've crossed the line, it's a threat to them because it says, ultimately, you have no leverage over me except what God has given you. Their stand makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. He says to them in verse 14, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? He doesn't even wait for an answer. He doesn't really care what they've got to say. The ideal scenario for Nebuchadnezzar at this point is to get them to conform so that he can regain face, so that everyone can get on with celebrating their unity. So he says he's going to give them another chance. Imagine how intense the pressure would have been for them at that point. 
There's the, the furious king in your face, not even giving you a chance to explain. There's the enforcers, your, your colleagues, deli- delighted at your downfall, ready with their phones to capture that moment for Twitter when you're thrown into the furnace. Behind you is a, is a multitude of people watching, angry at you for thinking that you're special, for thinking that you're better than everyone else, too full of yourself to bow down when you're told. And in front of you is the furnace just waiting for you. Nebuchadnezzar's confident that he can break them. But even if that fails, he's confident that he can make an example of them. In verse 15, he says, if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? There it is. From his own mouth, Nebuchadnezzar admits that he sees himself in the place of God. There's nothing any God can do to stop him. But obviously, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have a different view of things. And this brings us to our third point. God is able to save us from any human authority and so we are able to face them without compromise. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they know that God's in complete control and that's what's enabled them to take their stand. They manage to get a word in and answer the king. And there are three parts to their response. In verse 16, they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Serving God ahead of people, it doesn't really need to be begged for or justified. It doesn't even really need to be explained. It's not even that it's their inalienable right to serve God freely. It's more basic than that. They're obligated to serve God no matter what. The demand or even the suggestion that that we should do anything that denies God is indefensible. The second part of their answer we see in verse 17. If we are thrown into the the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it and He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. What God will be able to save you, to rescue you, Nebuchadnezzar's asked, they answer Him, our God. They have absolute confidence that God can easily save them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand and even from the furnace. Do they sound kind of cool, calm and and collected? I mean, we don't get to see the full picture, the full details or behind the scene. Maybe part of them is freaking out at this point. But what's crystal clear is that they can take this stand because they have complete confidence in God's control and power. We see the third part of their answer in verse 18. But even if He doesn't, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God, for whatever reason, doesn't choose to save them, they're not going to compromise. Not so much because they're choosing to defy Nebuchadnezzar, but because they'll never choose to defy God. Because even if it means facing death for following God, it's worth it. If you think about their answer, it's timeless and it applies to every situation. 
and to every believer. We don't have to justify that God deserves our obedience. God is able to save us from whatever consequence is threatened. But even if He doesn't, we say to anyone and we say to everyone, it's worth following Him. Always. That's not really what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear, as you can imagine. And so he throws out all plans for the happy Olympic opening type ceremony. In fact, you get the feeling that he doesn't really seem to care about the unity that he's aiming for anymore. He just wants revenge. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his disposition changed towards Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. You get the picture that he's out of control. He heats the fire so hot and he gets them thrown in it in such a rush that the process kills some of his strongest men. And then as he sits back to enjoy his absolute authority, he suddenly loses some of his self-confidence. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? In all his um, rage and and rushing, he's not sure if he's remembering the details correctly. His advisors assure him that there were three. But in verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Turns out Nebuchadnezzar was wrong. There is a God who can save his people from him. Because Shadrach and Meshach, Meshach and Abednego are unbound, walking around, now with a fourth person. God hasn't abandoned them. He's intervened miraculously to bring them safely through the flames by sending his angel, what pagan Nebuchadnezzar thinks looks like a divine being. And suddenly, the, the very ceremony that was supposed to proclaim King Nebuchadnezzar's greatness has been hijacked. This ceremony was supposed to celebrate his strength and, and unify people around him. But it's taking a very different turn. Look at verse 26. And the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. The dead, dazzling image that's towering above them, is suddenly not getting very much attention at all. It's not looking so spectacular now. But the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego has astounded every significant person in the empire. Even Nebuchadnezzar realises this. Listen to what he declares in verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar set up this image to declare that everyone should show him complete submission, but instead, what does he end up declaring? That it's right to defy him in the service of God. And rather than Nebuchadnezzar declaring that no authority will be tolerated above himself, suddenly it's being declared everywhere that intolerance of the God of the Jews will not be tolerated. Verse 29, 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces. He's still the same old tyrant. He still does it in his Nebuchadnezzar way, but suddenly he sees there's a greater authority. He set out to show his greatness and he ends up showing God's. As Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were marched from their homeland, from Jerusalem to Babylon, they would have been asking themselves, is it even possible for us to serve God under foreign rule? Will God even still hear us when we pray? Is God even still interested in us? And the answer they discovered, and the reason that this book was written down, was because God's answer to all these kind of questions is always yes. God was still interested in His people. God was still listening to His prayers. And so, yes, it was still possible for them to serve Him and worth it, even in the exile. It didn't mean that things would always turn out exactly how they wanted. The book of Daniel also tells them, told them, that there would be times when they would face the human authorities and die. But in every story, in every vision, on every page, it tells them that God would not abandon them. God is always in control. He wouldn't abandon them in this life and He wouldn't abandon them in death. In Daniel 12, 2, they will awake to everlasting life. Even though we're not the exiles, God still speaks to us clearly and powerfully in this book today. See, all human authority is either like Nebuchadnezzar's or it has the potential to become like Nebuchadnezzar's when it crosses that line. And how we respond when that happens depends on what we believe about God, whether we believe He's in control whether we believe He's good, whether we believe He has our best interests at heart. Sometimes the trouble comes from a government and our brothers and sisters around the world face state-sanctioned opposition all the time. In fact, I'm going to show you a story, one of a story like that, that comes from our partner overseas. Hi from Tanzania, I'm out of Central Asia on a break at the moment, see, no headscarf, also earrings. I hear that at TNE you're studying Daniel. That was such a formational book for me as I considered going to Central Asia. I was confronted with the idea of whether my faith was worth my safety. Could I remain faithful in the face of death? Praise God that's not a choice I've had to face yet, but it's a choice that local believers in Central Asia face often. I remember in 2010, a spy in the midst of the local church in the capital reported them all to the secret police and so many people had to flee and their leader was arrested. He was held for months and we don't speak of the torture he endured. When he was released, there were all kinds of rumours. The government claimed that they'd released him because he had recanted. They'd have to say that. They couldn't be seen to release a believer but we were pretty sure that their motivation was collecting on the ransom. The leader himself was spirited straight away to another country and from there he denied that he'd recanted. His commitment to Jesus remained true. I guess we'll never know one way or the other, 
although I'm inclined to believe our brother in the faith. I don't face anywhere near the kind of danger our local brothers and sisters do, even when I'm in Central Asia. So I find his witness a powerful challenge to me to stand firm. When I feel battered on all sides, I can remember the courage of this brother who by the Spirit endured far greater trials rather than deny his God. Steph points to that man's example as an encouragement and a challenge for her. No doubt if you're like me, Steph looks like an amazing encouragement and challenge herself, and she is. But the thing is, all of us are called to this. All of us are called to take our stand for Christ. Whether it's under the weight of small pressures or under the weight of great pressures, all of us are called at the beginning of our journey with Christ to take up our cross and carry it daily. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was someone who faced great pressure when a lot of the churches of the time actually were the ones crossing that line and signed up with Nazi Germany. But he listened to Jesus' call that whoever would follow him must take up his cross. He put it like this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. The Apostle Paul put it perfectly. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The thing about choosing now to die to ourselves and to live for Christ without compromise is that it's liberating. Because when we're faced with those times when when we feel the pressure to conform, whether it's small or great, we already know which way we're going to go. No matter how hard it gets, we're not going to deny God. And in some ways, it can feel like it's easier to deny God facing the small pressures than if we were actually facing the life and death situations. When your friend asks you directly, do you think I'm going to hell? Or when you're in the lunchroom and the conversation turns to how we all just wish Australia would grow up and same-sex marriage would come in. Or when a religious friend says to us, all religions are pretty much on about the same thing, don't you think? Have you ever felt the temptation at times like that just to tie your shoelaces, to bow on the outside but not on the inside? To just go along with something that you know is denying God because you feel the pressure to to conform is just too great. I've felt it. See, everyone loves religious people who are personally enriched by their beliefs but who are glad to bring them into line with the higher cultural authorities. That's admirable because it says not even God is a higher authority than what unites us. But God is the highest authority. And no matter how small or how great the pressure to conform, we don't have to because we never have to justify obeying God over everything else because our God is always able to save us, whatever the consequence small or great, and because even if he doesn't, then and there, it's always worth following him and never worth denying him. Our God's in control. We can trust him. And even if it means death, he'll bring us safely to a place where no harm can ever touch us. Let's choose now to live for Christ, 
with no compromise, no matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see just how great you are and the difference that makes to every situation where we face pressure to compromise, whether small or great. Help us to see that you have absolute control and absolute power. Help us to see, Lord, that we don't have to justify our obedience to you above everything else. Help us, Lord, to understand that you can save us and to realise that ultimately, because of Jesus, we will be brought safely into an eternity where we won't ever face danger again or opposition, but we will be able to worship you freely, unopposed for all eternity. Lord, give us such a clear vision of you and your heart for us that we would be willing to stand faithful all our days. We pray this for ourselves. And Lord, we especially pray it for our brothers and sisters around this world who face massive pressures as we speak. In Jesus' name, Amen.